Connections Cast, brought to you by TDN Australia and New Zealand. Hello, I'm Angus Rowland and welcome to TDN OzNZ's Connections Cast, long-form conversations with leading thoroughbred industry figures presented by Newgate, raising top-class racehorses. There is little doubt that in the heat of battle, being a jockey is one of the toughest jobs on planet Earth. The deprivations a rider puts their body through to make weight and steer half a tonne of hurricane-made flesh takes bravery and dedication. Equally, for day-in, day-out dedication and, dare I say, drudgery, being a trainer is right up there. Sparrows are still blinking the sleep out of their eyes when most trainers are halfway through their mornings, and then the payday doesn't happen till the afternoons. Today's guest has performed both at the highest level, all while running dairy businesses, reforesting the North Island and doing reality TV. Lance O'Sullivan, ONZM, welcome to the podcast. I think that challenge is where we'll start. Treasure Island, what possessed you and your wife Bridget to do a show like that? Oh, geez, Angus, that was a few years ago now. But um, I'll tell you the story that came up with that. I actually got approached to, to go on Celebrity Treasure Island, and to be honest with you, there are, there are no celebrities here in New Zealand. What a <laughs> not of any great accord, anyway. But I, I declined probably on two or three occasions, and then uh, my wife actually said to the the lady who was producing the show, they said, "Why don't you do a couples?" And she said, "If you do a couples one, she said, I'm sure I could talk my husband into going on and competing in it." So anyhow, a couple of years later, they came up with this grandiose idea of uh, couples Treasure Island or Couples at War, I think it was called, called at the time. <laughs> and I tell you, it was a um, you know it was a great experience. I actually went on there on the proviso. I said, look, you know, I'm training horses. I, I was pretty new to the training ranks. I've been doing it probably for two years. And I said, I can't be away for more than a week. And they assured me that okay, in a week you'll be on there for six days, and we'll get you off. And well, anyhow, as it went on, it was um, you know it was a proper treasure island. It was more like Survivor, to be honest. In fact, yeah, uh, I think when we were on there, I think my wife lost eight kilos. I lost seven kilos. And what they said, they said that okay, you'll get on and you'll get food and this and that. Well, that was all actually rubbish to get us on there. And the week went by, and a couple of other couples disappeared, and the competitive edge kicked in. I became the um, the chief of our camp. <laughs> And I said to my wife after two weeks, and I said, you know what? I said, I actually think we can win this. <laughs> so we continued on with it. And of course, you've got to make alliances and deals along the way. And, you know, I was actually a few years older than most of the other competitors. And I think we could read people pretty well. And with my wife's intelligence and my cunningness, I guess, we sort of got through to the final and uh, Julia Blige, we went on and won it. So that was a wonderful experience. So I think we were away for about 23 days on wow. this. And it was, it was a deserted island. Where in fact, the, the, uh, the crew and cast all left the island at night and there was only the competitors left on there. It was an island about one hour out from the mainland in Fiji. So you went out there. In fact, we arrived there, but we had to tandem skydive from a helicopter at 10,000. Yeah, that's how we actually arrived onto the island. So... It was all pretty full on right from the very beginning, but um, yeah, a, a great experience and something I'll never forget. Pleased I did it, but uh, would never do it again. 
<laughs> I gather some of the challenges were a bit gnarly. I think the, the milkshakes that you had to, to down would make a jockey's diet look pretty appealing. Well, well exactly. It was, it was one of those challenges where you had to, I think there was, there was about 10 different drinks that you had to, you, we had somebody throwing at a target and every time they missed, you had to take a uh, drink, whatever was in the glass. And um, there, one of them was salty water with milk. Um, oh. and it, it was, it was, I gotta be honest with you. It was the first time uh, I'd passed a motion in eight days. <laughs> there you go. It lets you know how little you actually had to eat on the island. And, uh, you know, there was, there was, there was no toilets. There was nothing. It was completely you on the island. There was no, luxuries you're allowed i think uh, two pairs of shorts a couple of shirts a jacket and a sleeping bag and that's pretty much how it was you know it was a lot tough tougher than what you see the uh, treasure island that they do actually do in new zealand now it's sort of like a fun camp if you like is it and, and i'd encourage our listeners to get online and see if you can track down some photos of lance in those days in his in his camo shorts with his had a bit of a rig back in those days lance i don't know whether those photos were taken before or after the experiment but uh, <laughs> no, pretty fit looking in fact I, I haven't really put on too much weight i think when the week i retired from being a, a jockey i think in the next 12 days i put on something like seven kilos and realized well actually none of my clothes fit me i feel like absolute crap if you like and uh so anyhow my weight settled down and i'm probably only about four or five kilos heavier than what i was originally when i was riding so not too bad well let's leave long john o'sullivan there and get into it shall we and for our listeners i'll start with some random facts a few things for our listeners to chew on about lance o'sullivan 2479 wins worldwide including 2358 in new zealand alone a record 12 new zealand premierships a record more than 60 Group 1 wins, an inaugural inductee into the New Zealand Racing Hall of Fame and a member of the New Zealand Sporting Hall of Fame. You've trained the last two New Zealand Derby winners. Now, that leads me to my first question. A big asterisk on your career as a rider was never winning a Melbourne Cup. Would winning it as a trainer with this year's Derby winner be up there satisfaction-wise? It's every jockeys or trainers or owners dream in the Southern Hemisphere to win a Melbourne Cup. And I had, I think I had seven rides in the big race itself. And as you can recall that I don't really want to talk about on the last occasion, I never actually made it to the start on the mighty Mayor Prafter who held up the race for, I think, seven yeah. minutes. But um, in fact, I've received no royalties from the TAB either, which I'm sure a lot of, <laughs> lot more revenue went through. <laughs> so, or Channel so, 10 as the viewers, <laughs> the viewers climbed. TV bloopers, but uh, but uh, look. Anyhow, it, it's it, you know I've, I've I think second. I finished as a jock second and a fourth. And I mean, it's everybody's dream. We've had one runner from the stable, a horse called Sir Charles Road. I think he finished seventh, and he was the second horse from the Southern Hemisphere home. You know, without all the Europeans there, so it it would have been a great result if they hadn't have been included. But you know, this horse Asterix, he's only had the four runs. He's uh, he's a real newcomer to the game and uh, what he did on the limited prep that he had it was really something special because horses just don't do what he did yeah. um, you know he'd had a 1400 he'd had a mile and then he won a, a lowly rated race for non-winners at a midweek meeting so I think the one thing that he proved to us all that he can stay and uh, just whether he'll get the ultimate two mile trip we have to wait and see but um, you know it's something we're going to try for he's sort of he's partially qualified for the race uh we've decided not to bring him over to sydney in the autumn right. it's quite an immature horse and we we just think by giving him every 
opportunity to get there. Um, you know, we'll see what happens, but it's certainly our aim. But whether he's good enough to compete in the big race, we'll just have to wait and see. Has he surprised you a bit? Because until a couple of weeks ago, Dark Destroyer was sort of the the, the great hope of the stable. And obviously you've, you've suffered some bad luck there. Your Asterix came from nowhere a bit for someone like me, but has he surprised you as well? Well, well, Angus, I'll be honest with you, you know, if it wasn't for Dark Destroyer, I think, well, we think he got cast in his box. And at one stage, he was the favourite for the derby. And then we had um, another filly that we that Andrew and I think highly of is a filly called Carmen Lyon, who finished third in the, the million-dollar mile. And then she um, she's had a sore foot, and she's only really come right in the last 10 days. So she's been off for quite some time. Um, you know, if it wasn't for those two going amiss, he probably never would have been really aimed for the race and it wasn't until you know really he needed another mile before we stepped him up over ground and as Andrew and I my training partner discussed if we were to run him in, in the mile there was no chance we had no of getting him to the derby and really he was only an outside chance of a making the field and b being competitive but um yeah probably if it wasn't for the other two going to miss we never would have beat he never would have been in the race yeah. uh did he surprise us uh, look Angus I, I think his breeding um, told us that he would run the trip. His yes. run is when he when he raced over ground. He looked look he looked a bit one pace when he's running fourteen hundred and again at the sixteen hundred. Then we stepped him up over twenty one hundred and he was sort of really flat footed between about the seven hundred and probably about the four hundred. And then he came up on the bridle and started to get going, and that gave us the encouragement to know that he was going to get the trip. Um, the thing is, whether he had the experience to do it was another thing. And that's why when it came to the race, we, we you know, it didn't look like there was going to be a lot of speed in the race. Well, I've never known a derby where they've gone, where they've run slow in New Zealand. They always run at a, a certain, you know, quite a good clip. So for that reason, we decided to sort of go back and just go around them and simplify things. And we thought by doing it that way, we were confident that he would beat home more than we're going to beat him home. And well, luck went our way, and he was very strong at the trip. The favourite was was a bit unlucky, and uh, the rest is history. You know, he got the win. But um, I think I think you know if they ran the derby again, he was only going to improve with the outing. It seems as though serendipity had a, had a lot to do with it, as he said, not just for, for getting into the derby and becoming your derby horse, but actually in the the run itself. Tavistock, you referenced the pedigree. There's one jurisdiction outside of New Zealand and Australia that loves the Tavistock, thanks mainly to a horse called Werther. Have you had a few sniffs from Hong Kong around this horse? A guy called Sam Cowdones, I think 75% of him, and he got a couple of other close friends involved. And he's very passionate about his racing. And, um, you know, I just couldn't see him. He actually purchased the horse. And when he purchased him, he said, his criteria was, I want to buy a horse to run in a Melbourne Cup. And, uh, you know, it was, he was, a, I think, a $450,000 purchase at the uh, ready-to-run sales. And, look, he was an immature horse, and all he had really was the uh, the the pedigree to do it one day. But um, certainly was, you know, we probably thought it was going to be more as a, as a five- and six-year-old as opposed mm. to a four-year-old. But, you know, we're going to have a crack, and we'll see what happens. This podcast is brought to you by Newgate, raising top-class racehorses. Newgate has built a reputation not only as a leading stallion farm, but a leading stallion nursery. 
In the last few years alone, yearling buyers could have purchased stallion prospects of the quality of champion first season sire better than ready. Vinery Studs Coolmore Stud Stakes winner Exceedance, Jubawi's Group 1 winning champion two-year-old of South Africa Willow Magic, Group 1 McKinnon Stakes winner and young Western Australian sire Awesome Rock, Cambridge Studs champion two-year-old Sword of State, and Newgate's very own champion two-year-old and Golden Slipper winner Stay Inside. Newgate, raising and consigning top-class future stallions. Let's talk about the cup. And you referenced the Pravda experience. Uh, you're so close in 85. The, the first million dollar cup with Koiro Cory May being run down by what a nuisance. High, high performance individuals talk about the window of dwelling on a defeat and then shaking it off and moving on or using it as a spur. You've just had the realisation of a dream snatched from your grasp in 1985 at the very last second. How did you pick yourself up out of that, that 1985 cup as a jock? I, I think I think to be fair, you know, when 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 she finished second in the Melbourne Cup that year, uh, look, it wasn't until the day before that I decided to get on a plane to come over. She'd she'd won the Geelong Cup, which actually gave her a spot in the race. Right? And the the day before, she was actually sore. She was sore, and she had um, the soles of her feet were bruised. And uh, my brother Paul, um, my father, who trained trained and didn't even travel over for the race because she looked like she was going to be very, very unlikely to run in the event. And um, my brother Paul, uh, uh, through some advice over there, ended up packing her feet with clay and cow manure. And it was an old, you know, an old remedy that he was advised to use, which he did. So I flew over the day before, certainly expecting, he said that it would be highly unlikely that she made, that she would get to run in the race. But he said, look, it's a Melbourne Cup. Um, you know, and the, I had I had rides back here in New Zealand on the same day, and being competitive, thinking, oh well, I'm I was sort of gunning for. I think it might have been my first premiership that I won was actually that season, so I was pretty keen to stay back and retain good rides here as well. But as you said, look at some Melbourne Cup, you might never get get the chance to ride in another one ever again. So I did travel over. Uh, it rained the night before. The track beca became on the easy side, which really helped her. Mm. And um, mir miraculously, you know, she trotted sound the next morning. So, you know, for you know, it was just a bonus to get to the race to compete in the race. And when she when she actually finished second, I don't think there was there was disappointment. I think we were elated that a she got into the race and b performed like she did. Right. And it probably probably wasn't until twenty four hours that the harsh reality actually hit me that how we've gone close to winning a Melbourne Cup but it didn't happen and will we ever get the chance ever again to be here doing what we've done with such a great chance in the big race um so you know it was sort of you know the first 24 hours was you know we were delighted with the performance and and what we all achieved together but uh, then the disappointment actually sunk uh, started to sink in afterwards um but hey we, we, it's not over the dream's not over we're still here and you know, while we're still training, we still we still may get the chance one day. Look, I don't want to make this the Lance O'Sullivan bad beats hour, but you're also <laughs> on the losing end of the race that is regarded by a huge proportion of the racing population down here as being among the greatest of all time. What was Bone Crusher, our Waverly star, like for the bloke in the runners-up pigskin? Well, well, I think it was one, it was one of those those races you know they those were never um tactics of the race it was more instinct which how it happened 
Um, look, I, I was getting the worst run of all time. I think I drew in a wideish gate and I went out the straight three deep and I was still three deep for the duration of the, of the, of the, the race until um, Bone Crusher decided to come outside me. Like, what was it at the thousand? I'm not too sure. Mm. And look, he was back behind us and he was one up. And I thought, well, if I go now, I'm going to push him sort of four and five deep and, you know, for the, for the, into the next corner. And all of a sudden it was going to sort of even the playing field a little. And that's really what happened. And, you know, in, in retrospect, when you look back at it, you know, those horses, those two horses were just so dominant to the rest of the field. Uh, I think if you did it now, you know, you'd almost have to be a, yeah, well, you know, a Winx or a Sunline could do it. You know, they, they certainly could do it, either of those two great mares. But, um, you know, I, I just think back then, you know, it just showed how much better they were than the rest. Uh, and they kept going. You know, the, yeah. the uh, amazing part is those two horses kept up a good gallop. They were, okay, they were out on the feet, out on their feet over the final 300 metres, but neither really flinched. And that's really how it was. Um, you know, it was that was a little bit like the Melbourne Cup. You know, we'd we'd have been involved in such a, a great spectacle, a great race, which is still talked about now, some I don't know how many years, you know, several years later, but also disappointment at the same stage. And I think we'd had a couple of couple of seconds and a third prior to that. And I think my father had had three seconds in the event. It also was shivery. Horlicks was unlucky. The year she mm. ran second to our mm. poetic prince. She clipped heels going out of the straight. Uh, with with we Bone to... Crusher. She clipped heels with Bone Crusher, didn't she? Yeah, I, I think, I think, and the amazing part about Horlicks too, you know, I, I don't want to sort of get off track here, but Horlicks and Bone Crusher, I think they only met on five occasions and she only he only ever beat her home on one occasion. Yes. So it just showed, and, he, and she was unlucky that that was in a group one race here in New Zealand. But, um, you know, we did go back and win it finally in 19, I think, 91 with a horse called Surface Paradise. You know, the the uh, dream finally came, became reality by winning that, you know, going back and winning it. And on a horse that was sort of at odds, I think it was about 18 to 1. Yes. And, uh, on that day. And he was the horse, I think, the start before he'd finished last here in his run prior to travelling over. But he was a little bit like that. Every time you got, if you spat on the track, he just wouldn't go a yard. I was going to say that he was a, he was absolutely a dry tracker and his three-year-old season back when they used to run the Derby over, over Christmas, Boxing Day, New yeah. Year period, when it is rock hard over there in New Zealand. I mean, he was, he was a very, very good three-year-old. Oh, look, he, he was outstanding. He, he won everything. And, you know, he went on, he won the Rose Hill Guineas. He carried yeah. on from our Derby to win the Rose Hill Guineas. And uh, then the Derby, I think it might've been wet that year in the derby and he was fair dinkum it had to be like concrete for him to show his best and also he was a horse if if he, if he was backed up backed up within a two-week space um he just couldn't perform you know he liked his week yeah. his race sort of space sort of two and a half three weeks he was at his um at his prime but look he was a very good horse uh, not flashy not very big he was like a bulldog is how we best expect would explain the horse but certainly it had to be uh things going his way and the track had to be rock hard and there's not many horses that could give superimpose a head start when superimpose was finishing strongly and go past him like he did in the cox plate i mean he, he obviously had a real turn of foot when the ground was right for him surface paradise is he a bit underrated oh look he, he would, would be without a doubt the most underrated horse i ever rode yeah. And I think my father would say that as a trainer, but I think it's just because he just mixed mixed his form 
so much and uh you know basically every time he got on a wet track he'd run last and that mm. was him but you know if you go back um you know there's races in new zealand where we won the group one i think a 2000 meter race and, and second was solvent and third was rough habit yeah they, you know yeah. you know he's a very very good horse but um just extremely underrated but i, I think he might have won nine or ten on the trot but he was he was a very very good horse If you want premium prices for your elite fillies and mares, the Inglis Chairman Sale is the one for you. The Chairman Sale is the highest averaging sale of its kind in the Southern Hemisphere, setting a record in 2021 with an average of $532,000. But it's more than a horse sale, it's a must-attend evening event featuring casino-themed entertainment, live music and cocktail bars in the Inglis Riverside Auditorium. Places in the 2022 Chairman's Sale are limited and entries close soon. Visit inglis.com.au for more information. Mooney Valley has been, really been a place of highs and lows for you. In, in 1997 in the Great Western, you went through the fence in a pretty, I mean, I, I watched it on video. It's, it was a horrific incident. Doctors thought you'd never ride again and you may always walk with a limp, but you were back. What do you remember about the fall itself? Well, um, yeah, look, I, I was fully conscious throughout the whole thing. Um, yeah, right. Look, look I rode, rode a mare from, from Mike Moroni and, and she, look, it was her first start in blinkers and she uh, led them up and, and a horse sort of came up on her outside going down the side and, um, you know, she reacted as horses can. And it was just one of those things. She just shied away, from, ducked away from the other horse on her outside and um, got got leaning against the fence. And she, she just got on such a lean with it. She just continued on and finally broke the running rail and went through. But look, it was just it was just one of those things. You know, I was off. I think I was off for 18 months and um, my leg did just break, Did you break it. your femur? I broke my femur in two places. Yeah. And um, so it was it was pretty horrendous you know, the actual break itself. And, you know, I, I had a rod inserted uh, down down the middle of my femur. And I look after, I think about about eight or nine months, I went for a clearance. And when I went, I was I was still, I was riding work, but I was in a bit of pain. But when I went for the final x-ray, they said, well, actually, the only thing holding your leg together is the rod. The bone is probably about three quarters of an inch apart. So then I had to undergo another operation and a bone graft and, it was about 18 months before I actually got back in the saddle. Yeah, wow. it, was a, it was a long time. But um, look, it was, you know, I, I ended up, I can run, I can walk, I can do everything without a limp now. And don't, um, so, you know, I was fortunate. I was fortunate, but um, it didn't put me off. I thought, well, I wanted to finish my career on my own terms and uh, not with an injury. So I was fortunate enough to be able to come back and do that. That's what I was going to ask. So obviously you just described the, the ordeal of the leg mending, but what about above the eyebrows? What was going on for you? Were there moments where you thought, oh, bugger this, I'm going to, I can't, I can't, this, I'm out, I'm retiring. No, no Angus, my, my, my nerve was always okay. That was, and I, and I think, um, yeah, that was never a problem. But I, I think the frustrating part for me was when I was actually competing and I was competing with uh, the second rod still inserted in, wow. my, in my leg and that was a hard part for me because the, the top of the rod was 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 still at the top of my 
my bone and it was digging into my into my or hip hip area yeah. I did not know exactly what you'd explain it and so the year when I came back I think I finished third in the premiership and I was just nowhere near um you know I, I was restricted um with you know how I could sit on a horse and certainly felt very uncomfortable frustrating too because a lot of the people who were putting me on um you know were starting to shy away from me I certainly was in a lot of discomfort when I was out there performing or riding and certainly wasn't performing up to the best of my talents anyway were what I thought and it wasn't until I actually had the rod taken out and uh, I came back I felt a lot better I felt a lot better uh, the pain it was gone and I was at that stage I was starting to struggle to get good rides and I was riding I, I think I've been back at two two or three meetings it was actually I'd missed the Ellerslie uh, Carnival uh, over Christmas, I'd missed the derby and everything, although I, was, I came back straight after that, but I started at the well, country meetings, if you like. Mm. Um, and it was a guy called uh, Keith Horton, and he was training in partnership with Graham Rogerson. And he had a, he had a filly running in the Oaks. I rode a winner, I rode a winner at a, at a lowly rated meeting, and he came up to me and he said, how are you feeling? I said, look, I'm, I feel good. You know, I feel I'm back riding well, but I said, I just can't get on good rides and he said uh he gave me he said look i had a filly win the royal stakes and i think she was favorite or second favorite for the oaks and he said you can ride here and um which i was surprised but delighted all the same and so i she was a mech with savannah success yes, and i think yeah I, she became so pretty handy brood man oh yeah i think she's <laughs> a mother of Savaville. in fact naturalism i think was zephyr suba she yes, that's right. Mare. That's she right. Was another, she was another mare that I rode early on, early, early on in my career. Yes, yes. So, right. So anyhow, he, he put me put me up on here, and my brother Paul uh, was training in a horse called Bo Alexander, and he won the railway under Chris Months. He won the won the railway handicap, and he was favourite for the Telegraph. And Paul said to me, he said, "Well, if he said if you're going to ride here in the Oaks, um, you know, you can ride this horse. You must ride this horse as well." So. Um, I went down to Wellington and uh, within a space of two races, I was back. I rode two group one winners in a row. And things just never turned back after that. You know, I was, I was away again. The good rides started to come and, you know, it uh, never looked back. Yeah, gosh. And then and, and you rode for another five years. And before we talk about the, the decision to retire, I, I, we should backtrack too because we talked about Horlicks, but we didn't talk about Horlicks's defining moment. The, the trip to Japan. So you'd been to Japan with our Waverly Star. Correct. How much did that experience guide you when you and your brother and your dad decided to take Horlix for the Japan Cup? Well, well, it, well it, was, it was a funny thing because um, our Waverly Star went up there and he won the lead up to the Japan Cup, the Fuji Stakes. He ran in the Japan Cup. He ran fifth. It was after, and that was, that was, uh, that must have been after his, his um battle with bone crusher so we went up he went up there, he won the fuji stakes and he ran fifth in the japan cup and bone crusher became unwell and he couldn't compete up there uh the one thing about our way star i know he finished uh second in a bmw but he was probably best at 2000 meters was probably right. his ultimate distance so when we went up there with um with horlicks um a, I think it was the first year that New Zealand have, didn't have the big entourage go up there because it, it had proved to be 
um, you know, we'd had a lot of few horses go up in the past and it looked, looked like the New Zealanders and the Australians were never going to win the race for those. They ended up winning it two years in a row with better loosen up following yeah. all its year. So I know when we went to go up there, there were a lot of problems with, with actually getting the papers all together. And it was only through my, my mother's, um, you know, she, she persistence, I guess, that we were, that, um, in fact, we got advised, look, this is really in the too hard basket. Uh, I know the guy in New Zealand who was in charge of it at the time, um, it became too difficult for him. So she actually took over. And um, so with all the necessary paperwork, she got the horse where she could, he, she could actually get there to compete in the race. So she went, she went up to Melbourne. She was favourite for the Cox Plate. She was scratched on the morning of through an elevated temperature. Yes. Um, then she raced uh, the McKinnon. Vo Rogue ran second. We you know, know he was a pretty handy type. And yeah. then she travelled out. She travelled on from there on to Tokyo, where she broke the world record at a following start in the uh, Japan Cup. Um, wow. But she was an amazing mare. You know, after that, she travelled back to New Zealand. And back in those days, we had million dollar races in New Zealand. I know we do now, but we had, I think, in the space of 89, 1991, I think we had six or seven which was a lot of money back then. I know it's still mm. fair, but now, but it was certainly a lot of money back then. And uh, so she won the McKinnon where she broke the track record at Flemington. She broke the world record at her next start in Tokyo. She came back here to New Zealand and her next start was a million dollar, 2000 meter race at Ellerslie. And uh, she was very flat going into the race. In fact, my father took her to a barrier trial. It was 2000 meter barrier trial. And she did heated uh, pretty much flat out with a horse at, um, you know, it was a sort of a second-rate handicapper at the time. Um, so, you know, we, my father was really scratching his head about where to, how, just how well she was going. But anyhow, long story short, she lined up in the million-dollar race and she didn't just win. She just beat them by a minute. And it was on a track that was probably a foot deep. You know, it was a heavy track, but she, she was just good in all conditions. It just didn't matter whether it was rock hard or, or you know, a, a heavy track. She could just get out there and perform. And she was six years old. I mean, like, she is the perfect advertisement for keeping top-quality mares in training, as is Sunline, as is Winx, all of Maccabi Diva, all of these, these mares that have built these enormous resumes. Talk, talk me through the race itself in Tokyo because it was, and I'm using air quotes here uh, for the listeners, the, a world record, but we know timing systems can be different around the world and and that kind of thing did you feel you were going fast i mean they run on tarmac at, at, at tokyo i know yeah. that much look the track is very very firm there and look look i think i think you know she drew a low i think she drew barrier two and she jumped well and um look and back in those days there's a winner of the arctic triumph breeders cup mm. um they were all there because it was an in invite and it was such a big thing at the time, it was the richest race in the world. And look, the pace was hectic. And I, and I thought after we'd gone probably about 500 metres, I actually thought, to be honest, that I was too handy with the sectionals that they were running. And in fact, if you, if you get the sectionals up on up and have a look at them, um, you know, I think they, as they were going, they were breaking track records on the way round. You know, yeah, the right. It was just incredible. And the, the slowest part of the race was the last, the last 400 was certainly the slowest they, they got very very tired but um look she was just one of those mares that you know she turned for home and there was a big you know she got a big split in the straight and they spread out across the track like they do there 
And, you know, she was out on her feet, but, you know, she just never stopped. She was one of those mares. She just never, ever laid down. In fact, I, I, I cannot recall ever a race where she was passed in the straight. You know, yeah. once she, you know, you know, she just made ground or held a position. She was extremely tough in a finish. But I think they ran their last 200 metres in 14 points something. Yeah, wow. So they, they, they were cooked. They, 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 were, were yeah, cooked. they were absolutely out of it. You know, we certainly didn't need to be going another 50 metres after the winning post. But, you know, it was, I think what got me about about that race, and I've never, I've never actually experienced it before or after, was the crowd. You know, there was 148,000 people went through the turnstiles for that race. And, um, you know, it, it's like it's like if you stand in front of a speaker and you, you've, you know, and the base of a speaker yes. is going, you could actually feel that on your body, you know. And I've never had it before, and I don't even know if it's possible or whether I imagined it. But you know, I certainly tell the story that you could feel the the vibrations from the people's voices because they they're certainly very vocal and they were cheering for their local hero who won the derby, who was the second horse. Yes, and. You know, I don't even know if that's possible, Angus, but I certainly was feeling something that particular day. That's extraordinary. And once again, speaks to her constitution. I mean, what must that feel like for the horse, who was so much more sensitive than a human to, to that kind of stuff? I mean, she just must have been bomb-proof. You look at her walking around the parade in that day in, in Tokyo, and she used to dance and get up on her toes but she always performed in front of a big mm. crowd. That's That was her. You know, if you went to a lowly rated meet, you know, she'd often win, but she's certainly the bigger the crowd, the better the, or the bigger performance she'd put up. <laughs> she's another one that went on to be a good mum. So you've you've ridden the mum of a Melbourne Cup winner, the mum of a Cox Plate winner, and the mum of naturalism. That's a pretty good trifecta. <laughs> any other any other mares in there that we should we should tick off? Any any mares that you rode at the end of your career that have yearlings going through the next sale? Because uh, you know maybe that pays to follow. Yeah, yeah. Well, I don't know. <laughs> I'm not too sure about that, Angus. But it was it, maybe it showed the quality of of mare that actually carried me around the tracks. Who knows? You know, I might have a lot. Yeah, it a lot to do with the success, but no, it certainly, um, you know, it certainly rode some very good mares. The 2022 sales season is here, and if you want integrity you can trust, you need a Federation of Bloodstock Agents Australia accredited member. FBAA members are guided by a strict code of ethics, making them accountable in all dealings and giving confidence that you'll be represented to the highest possible standard. For contact details of FBAA agents, head to bloodstockagents.com.au and secure peace of mind today. I'm mindful of time, so we'll, we'll, we'll move on. I just want to quickly throw a couple of other horses from your riding days at you. First one, Mr. Tiz. It's probably the toughest horse I ever rode. Toughest. And I, look, I'll just explain a little bit about the horse because he's certainly, you know, you talk about what's the best horse you ever rode. For sheer galloping, galloping ability, I'd have to say Mr. Tiz. And I, I think, you know, when he won, his, like I think he won seven group ones, he was the best sprinter ever to come out of New Zealand. And he won the railway handicaps. He went on, he won the Galaxy, of course, and carried three kilos more than the number two and two saddle cloth in the book. When he won his third railway handicap, the horse that finished second carried 11 and a half kilos less. So he had, he had the extraordinary ability to be able to carry weight. 
And, um, you know, I, I think he was one of those horses in the end. You'd actually almost go in the barrier, give him a pat and say, good luck, old boy, because you were just a passenger. You'd you know, just hang he would on. Just, he would just take, he would take you to, in places in a race where, where, you know, other horses wouldn't normally go, but he was very, very clever, very nimble, you know, nimble on his feet. He, he was, you know, and you have a look at his galaxy, we sort of went across here, if you look at his last uh, railway handicap win, where I was sort of tr trying to pull him off the fence, turning for him, and he kept lugging back, lugging back. And uh, I can assure you, if he went where I wanted him to go, he wouldn't have won. <laughs> so he says, you know, it's a matter of hang on your clown, I'll take you, let me do the work for you. But he was one of those horses, you know, and he look, he retired at, at Wexford. We kept him there, and I think he died at the age of 28. We found him dead in a paddock, you know, and he wow. was he was looked after like one of the racehorses. He he um in fact he always ran with a racehorse, and it was usually a filly. Uh, a young filly, he always ran with them, and um, you know, funny you. He was only happy if he was running with a young filly and he'd never, he'd only ever walk around the paddock, but he got fed like a racehorse to the day he died. I tried to use him as uh, a lead horse, as a lead pony when I started training. And uh, look, he became too competitive. When I went out there and I worked with other horses, he wanted to beat them. So I soon realized that um, he wasn't the right horse to do that, but an, an amazing horse and probably, probably an all-time favorite. Sounds like if he was human, he'd be an outside back for the All Blacks or something. A nimble, a quick, a quick thinking and competitive. Clever. Yeah. And a very, very clever horse. In fact, he had a hit on him like a suitcase. You know, his nickname was Snoopy. <laughs> if you can imagine Snoopy the dog, you know, he was, uh, yeah, that sort of described him. Huge snore on him. That's fantastic. La Souverone. I think she was my first group one winner. Look, there was a story behind that because my father the same year trained a, um, a three-year-old filly. I rode her as a two-year-old and she came back in New Zealand as a three-year-old and it's called Mapley Heights. She was purchased by Robert Sangster, um, a half share off one of our owners here in New Zealand. So she then went to Australia where she competed in the VRC Oaks. And at the time I was still an apprentice and I, I never got the call up and probably rightfully so. I certainly wasn't up to, to that task. Um, so she was trained then by the great Colin Hayes. He trained it at the time. And um, I, I can recall a story I'll, I'll give you. It's my, my, my brother, Paul, um, he was just a strapper at the time. And he was, wasn't very happy about us losing it to Colin Hayes. And it was, I think it was straight <laughs> after the BRC Oaks. And uh, he, said to, he said to Mr. Hayes, he said, tell you something now mr hayes he said you know you won't improve this filly from our training regime and he said i know son but he said time will and oh. he, it was such a very very wise words i know son but time will paul always remembers he said what a clever clever answer from such a wise old gentleman yeah. and that's what yeah. he was and he, he was he was 100 percent correct time will improve it but looks look long story short um um, last year, Brian ended up going to um, going to Sydney, and uh, my father took me, and I was still an apprentice at the time, to ride her, and she finished second in the lead up, um, in the lead up, the, the two thousand meter race. It's, I think it's called the Vinery now. It's not called that. Was it the Storm Queen? I think is its registered name. That, that's correct. So she she ran very well, and she finished she finished second, and. Then when it came to the Oaks, well, of course, Mapley Heights, she was the favourite. And 
last year Brian got one of the best runs through of all time. And they sort of, the two of them came together at about the 200. And last year Brian Julie obliged and won by a neck. You know, it was just, you know, one of those fairy tale stories how sort of my father took and look at, at that stage i was never leading rider and apprentice i was sort of riding about 40 odd 38 40 winners a season and i was never ever leading apprentice in new zealand i was sort of second or third every year and so it was a big gamble for him to take me over there but um you know for us to go over there mapley heights to run second in the race it was just a dream come true and that's really um probably what really sent set myself as a jockey on my path to you know um you know bit bigger and better things along the way that was my first big test and things came up i think at the time i might have been the first apprentice jockey to win the ajc oaks since world war ii wow um, I, I don't know if any apprentice jockeys have won it since but i think that was a write-up at the time um wow. yeah but it was it was quite a quite a big thing thing at the time you know especially you know, the rivalry between, you know, we'd taken her over there. She hadn't even competed in a stakes race. She'd only run in lowly rated events here in New Zealand, just grade races. Um, so she was probably lucky to get in the field. If it wasn't for a place in the Storm Queen stakes, she wouldn't have made the field. But, you know, it was just one of those fairy tales at the time. And and to your point about you being sort of middle of the road performance-wise as an apprentice, maybe the Colin Hayes maximum of time improving you had a bit to do with that as well. <laughs> yeah, probably good advice. You gave it about the horse. I should have heeded his advice about a jockey, but um, no, look, it was it was just just one of those things. I was never hungry as an apprentice. I was a bit of a, I was I was in the era of Shane Dine. I think we had five apprentice jockeys at our place at, at the time, so it was all pretty wow. competitive. But we we all had a great time. I think world champion sprinter Harry Angel. With a time form rating of 132, more than Nature Strip, Classique Legend or Red Zell, is it any wonder that his first yearlings have averaged more than nine times his fee? Is it any wonder that they have caught the eye of Chris Waller, Anthony and Sam Friedman, Michael and Richard Friedman, and Seamus Mills to name but a few? They believe in angels, and why not? After all, he could fly. Give me a vignette of the family at the time, because you've got your dad training with your brother when you're at the peak of your powers as a jockey. Your mum, from the sounds of it, is, is deeply involved in the stable at the same time, Marie, as, as well. What did you take from that era that, into your training career post-riding post retirement? Because not all families get along all the time. There must have been some lessons there, right? Oh, look, we, we had a very, very close-knit family. And, um, you know, I was, I was the only one in the family that uh, wanted to be a jockey. Paul always wanted to be a horse trainer. So, you know, we all all very, very close. But, um, you know, I think my mother, she was a mat matriarch of the family and, and she was a very smart, very clever woman and very level-headed. It's not just with business or riding, just life. You know, she was a very, very clever woman. You know, I, I think... I think you know, she really, really held us all together, you know, with, with some great advice over the years. So we were, we were extremely lucky to uh, have the guidance of her. Uh, but yeah, the, the family was very close and, um, you know, we were all in, involved, most of us in racing to um, a certain, in a certain aspect, or my, my sister Lisa, or my late sister Lisa, she was, of course, married to Mark Chittick and yes. she was involved in the, in the stud. 
Uh, my sister ended up, my eldest sister was a vet and my brother Mark was a farmer, but insane he was a farmer, he still wrote a bit of work as well. So we, were, we all worked in the stable during the school holidays and, you know, very keen on it. But my father was a, a mediocre trainer probably up until about 1973. In fact, he did a lot of, um, you know, he had jumpers, to be honest. And it wasn't until about 1973 he got a very good horse called Upa who went on and yeah. won a Sydney Cup. But, but and that was sort of the start of start of his career it was recognition as a real good. He moved more into the flat training side of it from then on. That leads me on to your current partner. Partnerships are a much older concept in New Zealand than they are in Australia. Australia partnerships are only sort of gaining momentum in the, the last decade. Andrew Scott and yourself, how does the partnership work in practice? Oh look, look, we have uh, we get on extremely well. In fact, I don't think we've I don't think we've ever ever had a blue. Um, look, I, I suppose for me, I'm doing a lot of other other things as, as well as training training horses. And um, you know, I'm there involved the buying, the selling, uh, the day to day running. Look, I, I go to the track in the mornings, but the day to day running in the afternoon. Um, Unfortunately, I can't be there every day. So that's sort of Andrew's department. And he's a very, very capable guy. Look, you've got to realise Andrew was um, successful before he joined our ranks. Yeah. Uh, he was trained in partnership with Michael Moroni. And he's a very, he's, he's just the ultimate horseman. You know, I couldn't speak highly enough about him as a person and for his ability as a horseman. But uh, look, we get on extremely well. We're very close partnership. We discuss everything. Um, we talk every afternoon about what's happened in the afternoon in the stable if I'm not there. So I'm very much, you know, kept up to date with everything current that's going on or everything that I should know. Um, but yeah, look, look, I'm blessed to have a partner like him. I certainly, you know, w without Andrew, there's, there's no way that we would have been up to have achieved the success that we have along the way. And, now, the um, game's changed a bit since you took up your licence in 2004 following Paul's departure for, for, for yes. Hong Kong. And obviously, since 2006, you've been training in partnership, as we just discussed. What, what, what is a challenge in 2022 for a trainer in New Zealand that just wasn't there in 2004, do you think? Well, I, I think in, in um, you know, our prize money is, is, uh, leaves, leaves a little bit to be desired. You know, and that's why Andrew and I try and get horses to Australia that we think are good enough to compete. Our prize money is improving, but, you know, the day-to-day the -day running cost, as every trainer in Australia would understand or know, just keep increasing. And uh, I think the cost of labour, you know, with our government here in New Zealand, you know, you know we're you know, business. I know our inflation is running at an all-time high, but I certainly don't know how because there's not many businesses that are really flourishing. Mm -hmm. So the minimum wage is going up and those are costs that we have to continue to keep passing on to the owner. So it becomes more and more difficult to encourage people into the industry. So I think people going in now, it's like, uh, it's a hobby. If you've got a boat, you play golf, um, you know, you, you race a horse, it becomes a hobby. It's discretionary income that you have to be prepared to forego. And if you, uh, if you get a return, all the better, but, you know, I think, you know, here in New Zealand, we have a lot of, lot more traveling to do. Um, we don't have enough good races with mm. a few and far between, especially in our winter months. Um, yeah, it just, you know, I think the, the, the financial side of it, that's our biggest bugbear. And for 
trainers in New Zealand to survive, we have to continue to trade horses. If we kept every horse in our yard and we didn't on sell them, um, you know, it wouldn't be worth getting out of bed in the morning. I, I think the, the first year I trained was probably my most successful year as a horse trainer. Uh, I trained a number of nice winners, inherited quite a good team from my brother Paul, trained a, a, uh, quite a few nice winners. And I think um, the guy who mucks out our boxes actually he paid more tax than what I did on the actual racing side of it. It earned absolutely no money whatsoever. Wow. So I realized then that we had to restructure it in a way that if I'm going to be getting out of bed every morning at 3.30, uh, it certainly had to be worth my while. So from then on, we've become a stable where virtually yeah, every horse is for sale, so long as the owner will sell. We, we put, if there's any offer for any horse comes in, we always pass it on to the owner. Um, so we've become a trading stable in that sense and not all owners want to, want to on sell their horses which we fully understand but um, it's the only way the stable can really survive to get ahead is to continue to sell so many horses every season yeah. um, and that's something, look, that's something that we've done successfully we've sold a lot of very good horses over the years that have gone on in one group one races but in saying that that's very good for us because they know that Every horse can be purchased as long as the owner wants to sell it. We will pass every offer on. Interesting. And and from a business perspective too, you, you're not restricting yourself just to the horses. Bloodstock is part of your life, but livestock is another one. You are one of those massive Kiwi agricultural cliches. You're a dairy farmer as well. I thought you were about to say one of those massive polluters in the environment. <laughs> but, uh, no, you got the wrong podcast, Lance. I, 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 <laughs> I, got, I got involved in dairying in about 1986 I came out of my apprenticeship I, I think um, in 1986 I did a five-year apprenticeship and I came out with $62,000 for my efforts as you know here in New Zealand the apprentice's master takes 50% of all money earned yeah my father was my master. You'd think he would have given it back to me but he didn't he, he no wonder he had five stuff. apprentices when you and Iris died were <laughs> yeah. right I know, I know. And I, I think he kept, I never received a sling either. I think think he kept all of those as well. But uh, look, long story short, I came came out with, with um, $62,000, which um, wasn't enough, a, a hell of a lot of money for five years work. And those days we were paying 1986. Sir Rob Muldoon was our government, national government, which I'm a national supporter. I just want to get that across. <laughs> but we um, we're paying 66 cents in the dollar tax. And our Whoa. interest rate rates, our interest rates were twenty four percent. So um, this is where my mother came in, the wise lady that she was. Um, all she wanted any of us to do was to buy some land. She said she we come from a very modest up background or upbringing. We, uh, in fact, I think my father never never had a vehicle until my brother Paul was four years of age. So you know we certainly didn't come from any sort of money back then. And and we, my mother decided I should try and put my land, my money into some sort of land. So I purchased a dairy farm, which was way out in the, the back blocks to let you know how bad the land was. There was a golf course next door and it was pretty much up and down Dale and um, very ugly farm. And so uh, to purchase it, I, of course, I couldn't get a loan from a bank in New Zealand here because I didn't have enough equity to put in. So uh, we went, my mother met up with, with uh, a, a person who financed money um, offshore and we actually purchased the Dushmark. So we we purchased it. I think the 
the, the farm was about $350,000 at the time. So we went offshore, purchased all the money in the Deutschmark, which uh, the way it worked is if our New Zealand dollar devalued, I then had to put in money to top it up to have it put it back on an even keel once again. So at one stage, I had to put in $20,000, which was about as much as what I was earning in a, in a season. Oh but it worked out. We, look, we were offshore for about uh, three and a half years, and it worked out that uh, with me putting in my money, it was about 11%, which was a heck of a lot better than the uh, 24% that I was going to have to pay here. So yeah. that's how I got involved in dairy farming way back then, 1986. And uh, from then, we've continued to trade up and um you know now we're sitting on you know quite a nice dairy farm but i did have another one where we we milked about 1100 cows but now we're back to 550 which which is a good number and you're not sitting on the stool pulling on the udder are you you know it's how how Um, hands-on are you no i i in fact i've I, I think i milked the only time i've ever been in a cow shed i think i was 12 years of age and my my uncle's my uncle was milking on a farm, working on a farm, but no, I've never actually physically been in the shed milking. No, we just have uh, farm managers and um, yeah. yeah, yeah. but it, it works well. It's, we, you know, dairy's, dairy is a commodity. We have our good years and our bad years. When it's good, it's good. And you don't crow about it because the following year, more than likely, it's going to be bad. If you put a, a line through 10-year period, it's pretty good. The other thing you grow is trees. Now, the concept of windbreaks in farming is not new. It can boost crop yield by creating microclimates. It controls erosion and even reduces energy costs. But you have a philosophical reason for your arboreal obsession, and that is a bit to do with the legacy of yourself and, and the growing of the tree itself. Is that right? Yeah, that's that's correct. I When I, when I purchased that ugly farm in 1986, I went about planting it and soon learned that what I was trying to plant there, those beautiful English oaks, weren't actually working on the side of a hill in a windswept climate. But um, look, I've progressed over the years. I've, I've probably planted now in excess of 14,000 trees. Wow. And when I say planted them, um, I haven't had anyone else plant them. I've planted them myself over those years as a jockey. It was fantastic for my weight. Right. I get out there trees. And, um, uh, but look, I've... I've yeah, I planted probably about six or seven different properties now. None of them have actually been for shelter bouts. They've been for the for the uh, purely for the aesthetic reason. Um, you know, and there's some I can go past properties now, and you know, I hope in time they can say, well, that was a property. You can tell that was planted by Lance O'Sullivan, and a hundred years time, maybe they will. But I've certainly improved um, the aesthetic view of. of quite a few properties over the years and look I still continue to this last year I think I planted 110 trees and look it's a passion of mine Mm. um is it an obsession or I'm not too sure I might have a bit of OCD about it but uh you know I continue to do it year in year out and while I'm still able to physically able to I'll continue to do so so interesting all right, we're going to wrap up. First, we're going to do a quick fire would you rather. So I'm going to give you two options and you choose your favourite out of the two and then we'll finish with the question we finish every podcast with. Are you ready for your would you rathers? Far away. All right. Melbourne Cup or the Everest? Melbourne Cup. Zabil or Dane Hill? Zabil. Beer or wine? Wine. Horlicks or Milo? Milo. Oh, there you go. Top lot or winner's circle? Winner's circle. Red shed or cow shed? Red shed. 
Matter Matter or Mooney Valley? Matter Matter. And finally, if you were to be put in charge of racing in New Zealand, what would you do on your first day? Sack half the people there. <laughs> look, it's, that's a, look, that's a difficult question because I, I think, um, you know, the people down there, they're doing a, they're doing a, a pretty good job under very difficult conditions. I would um, I certainly, I certainly wouldn't want their, their job at times. And uh, look, I have a, do- a daughter that works, works on the, um, the fringes, the fringes of the industry. And, um, you know, she explains a few things to me, what goes on in-house, et cetera, et cetera. And, um, you know, I, I certainly don't begrudge them of their position and what they have to do and what they have to put up with. But I think we just need money in the industry. And it's a, it's a matter of canvassing uh, the government uh, for money or um, some sort of reprieve, tax reprieve. But I'm certainly in time, the industry can be good. Um, we, I know there was um, there was a report done by uh, John Massara and they, they certainly, mm. um, you know, if they had have done it uh, 100% on the way that he wanted it done, I'm certainly, we would have been a lot better off now. But, you know, we, I'm sort of optimistic about the industry and how it's going to go long term. And I think to be in it, you have to be. Um, how long I'll be in it for, who knows? But it's something I've grown up with, always been passionate about and well, can you continue to do so until something better comes along? Lance O'Sullivan, thank you. Pleasure. I hope you enjoyed this episode of TDN OzNZ's Connections Cast, brought to you by Newgate, raising top-class racehorses. Don't forget to give us a five-star rating and recommend us to friends. And of course, subscribe to TDN OzNZ's Daily Edition for the best thoroughbred news and information in the Southern Hemisphere. I've been Angus Rowland. Thanks for listening.